Hey everyone, Paul here. You're listening to part three in our series entitled Jesus and John for Vakey. It's an exploration of the points of intersection between theology and cognitive science, specifically the work of cognitive scientist John for Before we begin today, I just want to give you a sort of a production note here. My office studio where I normally record these podcasts, there's some major construction projects happening outside of my office, which makes it an untenable place to record a podcast. So I've moved to a home office studio. Uh, The setup is not quite as good as what I have in my regular office situation, but I didn't want to wait the potentially month or so that this construction project is going to be going on to put out another uh, episode in this series. So uh, if you can endure a little bit of degradation in your audio quality. Uh, I promise to make up for it. Hopefully, I shouldn't promise that. I hope to make up for it in the the quality of content today. So those of you that are audiophiles out there like me, if you're like, "Eh, you know, it doesn't sound quite as good as it normally does, please excuse that and forgive that. Today's episode and all of our episodes are made possible without advertisement because of the generous support of listeners just like you over on Patreon. Make sure you stay tuned to the very end of today's episode where I can tell you more about that. You can find out about some of the bonus perks for getting involved in supporting this podcast, opportunities to have discussion forums, monthly Zoom calls, bonus Q&A episodes, and a whole bunch of other fun stuff. So again, stay tuned to the end to find out more. What would happen if you got New Testament scholar and theologian, probably one of the most important and influential theologians alive today, N.T. Wright, together in a room with John Verveke? Would they have anything in common? I mean, after all, Verveke is a self-proclaimed non-theist and a cognitive scientist. What in the world would these two men possibly agree upon? It's something I've been thinking about quite a bit lately. In fact, one of the guys in our monthly Patreon group discussions that we have on Zoom, Rob, shout out to Rob out there. Thanks for all your contributions, Rob. Rob's reminded us on several occasions about N.T. Wright's epistemology of love. Now, of course, most of us that are familiar with Wright's work is probably mo- are probably most familiar with Wright and his New Testament scholarship, his work on the Gospels and on Jesus, how God became king, um, his work in Pauline theology that certainly has been controversial in some circles, the quote-unquote new perspective on Paul, which really isn't a new perspective at all. But anyways, uh, actually, I really also enjoy, on top of that, when Wright dabbles in a little bit broader theological and philosophical reflection, as he did in the 2018 Gifford Lectures, which later became a book. That book, if you want to check it out, is entitled History and Eschatology, Jesus and the Promise of Natural Theology by N.T. Wright. At the core of Wright's argument is the belief that if we're going to rightly come to know what's true about reality, we can't just dismiss any talk of love as intellectually shallow sentimentality. Now, N.T. Wright is fairly well known for his critiques of the Enlightenment, and in particular, the critiques of the epistemology of the, of the Enlightenment. And Wright considers it just a, a revival of ancient Epicureanism. 
What was Epicureanism? Well, Wright distills the philosophy of the Epicureans down to this, quote, The gods may exist, but they are in an entirely different sphere to ourselves, taking no notice of us and certainly not intervening in our world, end quote. The Epicurean worldview, it wasn't, wasn't accurate to sit, call that an atheist perspective. Epicureanism wasn't atheism. It just split heaven and earth, spiritual and material, into categories that made one relevant and the other, for all intents and purposes, irrelevant. Remember the categories of emanation and emergence that I talked about with Verveke back in our second conversation? Remember, emanation was the sort of top-down, emergence being bottom-up epistemology. Now, Plato, if we're going to stick kind of in the, the, the world of Greek philosophy for a moment, Plato's epistemology was more focused on emanation. So think about that classic picture of the academy, uh, the painting, where Plato and Aristotle are walking side by side. There's actually a bunch of other philosophers, Greek philosophers in the picture as well. We won't talk about that. What's Plato doing? Plato's pointing up. Aristotle's pointing down. That's because Aristotle was more focused on emergence. So, for example, Aristotle believed that we could take an empirical experience like motion and build up a logical argumentation from the movement of a single item and then build upon that the logical necessity that this movement had some mover to cause the motion. And then you could actually, for Aristotle, you could continue to scale that cause and effect from a single item moving all the way up to God. Again, you know, Aristotle argued for the necessity of there being a prime mover. Now, he did this through emergence, through scaling up from an empirical experience like motion and arguing that if we go all the way back, there has to be a fundamental prime mover who is, again, fundamentally unmoved and is the ground of all movement. It's Aristotle's focus on emergence that often gets him the title, the first scientist. For the Epicureans, though, to scale emergence up all the way into the spiritual realm, the realm of the gods, it's, a, it's such a ridiculous distance between the, the movement of a singular thing and the work that it takes to scale that all the way up that it actually, from the Epicurean perspective, they believed it inhibited people from a more worthwhile task. And that task was just pursue happiness with the short time you have in this life. And you can see the, the appeal in this sort of philosophy, right? Life is short. Soak up as much pleasure as you can get. <laughs> Don't waste your time because, you know what, the gods are probably, even if they do exist, they seem to be fairly disinterested in the realm of men and daily affairs, right? N.T. Wright believes that the pitfalls of the Epicurean philosophy were also at the core of Enlightenment philosophy. In particular, that that if we assume that we can only believe things from the bottom up via emergence, that we quickly will lose the foundation on which we stand to even build up, right? The, the presupposition that we build our movement of emergence from down to up is built on a 
again, a presupposition that reality is intelligible, that it's ordered, and it's coherent enough to even be knowable through our senses or through reason. That seems to be built on some sort of top-down metaphysical structure, an assumption at least of a certain metaphysical structure to reality that isn't easily deducible through experience. As we talked about in so many in numerous episodes <laughs> throughout the three plus years of the, this podcast, uh, covering the secular age, the work of Charles Taylor, James K. Smith, and into post secularity in the series entitled uh, God's Wizard Witches and the End of Secularity, the movement of the Enlightenment and the scientific age progressed with all sorts of benefits. There's no doubt. There were incredible benefits that came with the Enlightenment and the scientific age. All the benefits that it provided as, as people really took seriously the, the reasonableness and the intelligibility of reality eventually led people away from the deism of the 18th century and into a full-blown materialistic naturalism that denied a higher dimension of reality. Uh, that ended up denying a higher a dimension of reality that even the Ep Epicureans at least acknowledge existed, even if it was distant and functionally irrelevant. The Epicureans at least acknowledged there there would there has to be and like likely is a realm of the gods. We just don't care about it. That's very different than what happened as we moved from the 18th century into the latter half of the 19th century, and of course, into the 20th century, the noumenal, the, the spiritual, um, that transcendent dimension of reality, it's not only just not relevant, as really was the case in deism in so many ways, where God effectively is the prime mover, he is the clockmaker who set everything in motion and leaves it to go and isn't involved in any sort of way in the day-to-day the -day affairs of human beings. We moved from that into a worldview that just flat out denied the not just the relevance, but the existence at all of the transcendent. Of course, as a New Testament scholar, Wright might have been most concerned with what philosophical developments like this in Western thought did to our conceptions of Jesus, especially in places that still continued to call themselves Christian churches. If we rule out things like the Incarnation and the Resurrection because our supposedly objective, bottom-up, emergent epistemology rules out the very possibility of the transcendent, then for right, what we've done is actually precluded the possibility of knowing Christ as he actually is. Our split-level world either names the incarnation and resurrection of Jesus supernatural, as if it were the intervention of an otherwise absent God, or it eliminates it from even being possible at all. Wright also argues that the heart of Western dysfunction, the dysfunctional features of Western Civ, there are two myths, the myth of Faust and the myth of Frankenstein. Faust is the name of a protagonist in a medieval German legend. If you're not familiar with it, in this legendary myth, Faust sells his soul to the devil in exchange for power, or glory, wealth, and pleasure. The only price that Faust must pay in return is that he is never allowed to say to anyone, quote, 
linger a while. You are so beautiful. In the 1940s, Thomas Mann retold the story. It's actually been retold on numerous occasions since the Middle Ages, but Thomas Mann retold the story, making the diabolical deal even more explicit. The devil tells Faust, in exchange for all that he is given, he is forbidden from one thing, quote, thou mayest not love, end quote. Wright's argument is that the renunciation of the other-centered love by Faust echoes ideas found in the Epicurean poet Lucretius, who warned that love may be a hindrance to erotic pleasure. But we can also see in the myth of Faust a a point of connection with postmodern critique of the West. The postmodern critique of the West has been largely focused on the West's pursuit of colonizing power, and it's a critique we need to listen to. Regardless of what you might feel about Derrida or other postmodern philosophers, there is a lot of value in postmodern thought in its ability to critique uh, blind spots in Western thought. And the critique of the West pursuit of power is a valid one we need to entertain. Now, whether whether the core of Western identity is a pursuit of power you know, we heard that in a conversation between Jordan Peterson and John Verveke. That's a debate that we will have to table to another time. But there's little doubt that the exploitation of Native peoples, African-American slaves and others, it displays in the West the, the Faustian cost for unmitigated power and glory. And that comes at the cost of our inability to love others, and in particular, to love the least of these for right, the, these dysfunctions of the West are a reminder of a second myth, the science fiction tale of Frankenstein. In Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, Dr. Frankenstein builds a monster that he thought he could control. But as the story goes, the monster was well beyond the control of Dr. Frankenstein. To write... The West has built a monster that we thought we could control. But what we have built now seems to be terrorizing the world beyond our control. A host of idols that we built, that we thought would serve our aims, we are now subservient to their wishes. Mars, the god of war. Mammon, the god of money. Aphrodite, the goddess of sexual pleasure and erotic love. Wright says this, quote, The false gods obtain their power and apparent authority from the fact that they are really aspects of the created world that, for a a Jew or Christian, is itself the loving gift of the wise creator. But when we respond to the idols rather than to the creator, we are driven not by love, but by greed and lust. That's what idols do. They lure you into the Faustian trap. End quote. We talked about this at length in the Gods, Wizards, Witches, and the End of Secularity series. When we kill God and the death of God, we don't end up with just some purely neutral secular vacuum, as the secular myth would tell us. What we end up doing is replacing that God with other gods. And the gods and monsters that we build to serve us inevitably force us into servitude. This is the cyclical pattern of history. We see it throughout the scriptures as well, the cyclical pattern in Israel's history. For right, this cyclical destructive pattern 
points us to the fundamentally disordered and misaimed ways of attempting to know reality, the ways that we use that do not have love at the center. For right, love is the best mode of knowing. Quote, love is the constant between our present incomplete knowledge and the full knowledge yet to come, end quote. This is what he believes is at the heart of the Apostle Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 13, to which Wright translates, For at the moment, all that we can see are puzzling reflections in a mirror, then face to face. I know in part for now, but then I'll completely know through and through, even as I am completely known. So now, faith, hope, and love remain. These three, and of them, Love is the greatest. 1 Corinthians 13, 9 through 13. Wright believes that to properly see the world and God, there's a necessary awakening one must experience. It is an awakening to the love of God. It is the emanation of God's love revealed in Christ and with trace glimpses in all that is true, good, and beautiful in creation. This is why Wright believes what is at the heart of the proper love-centered scientific endeavor is what he calls, quote, responding to reality. Understanding the giftedness of the cosmos and, and sheer existence as an act of love changes our mode of engagement with it. It removes the illusion of supposedly neutral objectivity while taking seriously the proper presentation of the manifest love of God in creation to the world around us. Quote, We humans are called not to a cool, detached appraisal of the world, nor to a self-indulging grasping of it, but to a delighted exploration and exposition, which respect and enjoyment go together. End quote. We present our experiences of the world with humility and openness to correction so that we can live in more loving harmony with our beloved who loved us first. The impacts of this epistemology of love on a discipline like history could also be profound too, not just in science. Of course, in the sciences, we engage the world with a loving predisposition to know and to understand the love of God that preceded us and to be open to receiving it as it is. But this also is the case that there are profound impacts for disciplines like history. In one ditch of the historical disciplines, we have this old quest for a universal history, a totalizing history, this this narrative that under the pretense of objectivity can too easily dismiss or minimize the perspective of those on the underside of history. Like, think about it. Egyptian history had no written, written record of the plight of the Hebrews in slavery or their deliverance. Maybe that never happened, right? Maybe that is the objective truth of history. Maybe the story of Exodus just never happened. Or maybe the powers that be in Egypt understood the Faustian exchange. They understood that to love the Hebrew people would have included valuing them and telling their story. But to do so, to tell the story of pithy slaves somehow delivered by their tribal god over the all-powerful gods of Egypt and Pharaoh, 
that would be a story that would cost them some of their prestige and power. So maybe, just maybe, it was willfully omitted. Again, that's a debate maybe for another time. <laughs> the historical critical exploration of the book of Genesis and, you know, the Egyptian archaeology. We can't get into that all today, but it is to bring up the question of whether or not a pursuit of objectivity and some sort of totalizing universal history neglects the stories of those on the underside of history. You probably didn't know that Nagasaki, for example, the, the place that we dropped the second atomic bomb on, of course, Hiroshima was the first, you probably didn't know that Nagasaki was home to a thriving Christian community that was actually gathered in worship when America dropped the atomic bomb. In fact, the bomb was detonated over the Yurikami Valley, this is actually the place that has the highest concentration of Christians in Nagasaki. To tell that story and to genuinely love the Japanese people with the love of God may have cost us some post-war power. That's why I never heard of it as a kid. And you probably didn't either. We needed to maintain our Faustian prestige, right? To tell that story. And of course, I'm bringing up the Christians there. <laughs> It should grieve us just as much, the loss of life for those that weren't Christian. But I bring up the Christian one because there was a demonizing story of all Japanese people that happened during World War II and continued on after World War II and post-war uh, reconstruction. I tell this story because it was one you probably never heard of. Now, if only the American post-war perspective of the war was ever told, we would never have known about the, the, the Christians in Nagasaki killed in worship. Maybe that would have been the quote-unquote objective story. But this myth of objectivity when it comes to history, it's exactly that. It's not myth in the sort of Jungian sense that we might think of myth. It's myth in the sense that it is, it's, it's not a true picture of reality. Quote, and this is quoting right, quote, pure objectivity about other persons would appraise them at a distance rather than engaging with them. Pure subjectivity would use them to gratify one's own whims or desires. Love means not just allowing others to be themselves, but relishing them as being themselves, as being both other than ourselves and other than our initial hopes and expectations of them, end quote. Any of you that have been married for any length of time would say amen to that. Any of you that are parents that have children would say amen to that, right? We learn in that process that love means we're not just allowing others to be themselves, but we actually celebrate and relish them as being themselves, as being different from our own egotistical selves, different than necessarily our hopes and visions and expectations of them. They are their own persons too. And we learn this, right? You cannot force your spouse to be made in your image. That would not work out for well for you well. I promise you. And those of you that have been married for a while said amen, amen right? Quote, Quoting again from right here, quote, as we pursue this work, we should remember that grief is also a mode of love, and that the epistemology of love thus includes within itself the epistemology of grief. The sorrow we rightly experience at the horrors and wickedness of the world, including our own follies and failures, is the shadow side of love for God's world. 
and longing for it as it was meant to be, end quote. Now, thus far, I've made very little mention of Verveke. So how does any of this possibly dialogue with the work of a cognitive scientist like John Verveke, who self-identifies as a non-theist? To answer this, I want to zero in on two Verveckian concepts. The first is decentering. And the second is Verveke's understanding of agape, one of the Greek words for love used in the New Testament. Let's talk a bit about this first point of intersection between N.T. Wright's epistemology of love and Verveke's work on decentering. Verveke draws upon the work of Igor Grossman, who produced important research on what we can call decentering strategies and demonstrated the efficacy of decentering in the attainment of wisdom or systematic insight. Remember, we talked about systematic insight in part two of this series. Often when people are stuck in a difficult interpersonal problem, we were talking about marriage before, so let's stick with marriage. Let's say a difficult interpersonal problem with a spouse. When you ask them to describe the problem, it seems that by default, they will describe the problem from a first-person perspective. Another way of saying that might be that they're describing it from an egocentric perspective. It's like when they do this, and any of you that have been in any sort of counseling, you probably recognize it. That's what comes up in your own perspective, or maybe you are a counselor yourselves and you hear people's stories, or you're a pastor, you hear people's stories a lot. You hear them tell it from a first person perspective, especially as they're talking about the problems in their marriage. It's like they just can't seem to figure out the solution to this nine dot problem of marriage. And oftentimes it seems like the other person is the problem, right? The interesting thing that Grossman found was that if you shifted their perspective by asking the same person to describe the situation from a third-person perspective instead of a first-person perspective, it ends up disrupting their default egocentric framing. It decenters them. A common result of this decentering strategy is that the person gets unstuck from the problem. Their frame expands because it moved beyond egocentric concerns to considering the thoughts and feelings of others. And Verveke believes that this decentering, which is at the heart of the kinds of altered states of consciousness we called states of self-transcendence in part one and part two, that the, this descent, decentering that can happen in as one moves beyond states of self-transcendence into the, to the mystical and into metanoia and to awakening, this decentering is central to the attainment of wisdom, and it is central to it a genuine awakening from the meaning crisis. For Verveke, a radical decentering affords wisdom, not merely just by changing our perspective, because it's not just a, merely a, a change in cognition or consciousness. Radical decentering is a changing of the self. It ends up transforming our character via participation with another. It is knowing by conforming 
And this participatory engagement with reality as it is, is a reciprocal revelation. Verveke talks about this in part 10 of his Awakening from the Meaning Crisis series. Quote, it's so beautiful precisely because the coupling is so profound. And think about it, you're, you're getting reciprocal revelation. The world is revealing itself more deeply and the depths of yourself are being revealed in a coupled fashion. Well, that's love, end quote. Wow, that's quite a perspective. When we do this decentering, we step out of ourselves, what we are actually looking for is conformity with another, to conform, not to like become the same person, but we're looking like a hand conforming to a cup that we might hold. We are, we're looking for it to function in the way that it should. And it's a participatory engagement. It moves us out of simply our egocentric concerns to see how we connect and conform with others. And for Veiki, this is, this is actually a movement of love. Quote, love is mutually accelerating disclosure and love is something you know by participating in it. End quote. That might be one of the best definitions of love I think I've ever heard. Mutually accelerating disclosure. It just nails it, right? Those of you that have been, again, married or that's not the only place we experience love, but it's one of the deepest bonds that I can, you know, draw any sort of comparison to. Love between parent and child, that's another one, and it's one that hopefully most of you experience, but I know that many of you have not even had that sort of, that sort of positive experience of love between parent and child, and of course, certainly marriage is not for everyone either. So I apologize if these metaphors and these analogies make you feel uh, excluded from the experience, but uh, they're the, the best ones that I can draw upon. Okay, again, so from like a cognitive science perspective, how does this work? All right, what if, and this is Verveke's question, what if the internal machinery, all this processing power that seems to be by default given primarily to self-preservation. Again, we talked about that last episode. That's not fundamentally bad that we want to stay alive. <laughs> we need that to happen, right? But what if all of that machinery that seems to constantly be at work for self-preservation, and sometimes again, by default, is aimed towards egotistical aims, what if instead that machinery was turned towards the other, turned towards the world, given to the world outside of ourselves, given to others. That would be a pretty loving thing, right? All of that processing power, all of the, the energy, all the internal machinery, all of that spent uh, life force, if you will. <laughs> what if that was turned not inwardly towards ourselves, but turned towards another, turned towards the world? Gosh, that would be That'd be a pretty loving thing, wouldn't it? But what might that cost you? I would say it would be an inversion of the Faustian myth. You can truly love, but it's going to cost you some of your power that you set aside for self-preservation. And Verveke actually cites this, cites studies from Novak in 96, Clayton in 2000. He actually cites 
some sound evidence that this is actually true, that what we have to do to to rightly love someone other than ourselves is we have to sort of invert some of the the, the, that machinery that we have dedicated to self-preservation and egotistical power, and it has to be rededicated to something else. Again, Verveke cites these studies going back to 96 with uh, Novak and 2000 with Clayton, that those who actually went through profound metanoia-inducing mystical experience have somehow ended up turning all of the energy bound up on the self they actually find that energy and the machinery of their their consciousness, of themselves, turned towards the world instead. It is the exaptation of those default processes and programs set to use for a different purpose. What is exaptation? If you're not familiar with what exaptation refers to in evolutionary biology, let me try to explain. Uh, Verveke, in his lectures, cites the work of Michael Anderson on exaptation. Let's think specifically about a part of our body that probably developed for one purpose but gets exapted, meaning it gets dual purpose for something else. Let's think about our tongue. it seems like, according to the work of Michael Anderson and other other biologists, that the tongue developed not primarily to be a tool, an instrument for talking or for communication. The tongue developed to be uh, maybe primarily like a poison detector, right? We have these taste buds on our tongue, and the taste buds allow us to discern whether or not something that we are consuming, which we need to survive, that what whether or not what we're consuming is for our good or for potential harm. So if we get something on our tongue that might be potentially negative for us, we might have a reaction, a reaction right away as it hits our taste buds and says, no, this is not good, right? The tongue's primary use according to biologists like Michael Anderson, is to is is in, in the act of eating and consuming. It's a defense mechanism. It wasn't primarily uh, for the purpose of communication. But instead of developing an entirely different organ for, you know, communication, what we ended up doing was using that tool for another purpose. And of course, now we use our tongues for communication. To be more specific, I should say, we use it for speech. To develop some sort of to develop multiple organs for that is going to be uh, an increasing demand on energy resources, right? And so we're trying to be really, really efficient creatures to the best that we can. Uh, efficient creatures using what we have in a way that minimizes our energy demands and increases our likelihood of survival. So again, for those that have had that radical decentering experience, the ones that produces metanoia, the ones that people say are some of the most profound awakening experiences of their life, what again, what Novak and Clayton showed in their research was that the machinery of our energy and attention got redirected away from purely self-preservation, egotistical concerns, and instead was turned towards the world outside of itself turn towards another. It's such a, I mean, it's a profound picture. And like in some sense, you could Christians could think of the cross of Jesus as as a holy acceptation. Uh, it's an acceptation of a crude instrument of death. And to me, there's no. It's it's like such a profound sense of 
overlapping, interpenetrating truth. If we think about the cross as a holy acceptation, this is an instrument that was designed for death and execution, that God repurposes that for the dual function of, of salvation. It's a just a beautiful picture. To me, then, it's no wonder that perhaps the metaphorical call to carry our cross, the call that Jesus gives his disciples to carry their cross, might involve the acceptation of our biological, our psychological survival machinery to have that turned towards the well-being of the world. Oh my goodness, guys, this is, this is to me, is just a profound points of intersection. Listen, listen to what Verveke says in part 12 of his Awakening from the Meaning Crisis lectures. Quote, imagine the intimacy you have in your self-knowledge being turned on the world. So all of that energy that's stored up in your egocentric processing, all the time and the resources and all the who am I, what's going on and how is it and how, well, I'd rather yada, 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 all of that, all of that. Imagine if you could take that machine and say, forget about John vaguely. Again, he's talking about himself. Just even for a little while, turn it on and turn all that massive machinery onto the world. Radical, radical decentering, I propose to you, is doing exactly that. All of the time and effort and processing and skill and memory and structures that we've built into our ego can be exapted disclose the world, end quote. Boy, this to me uh, is mind-blowing. I hope it's blowing your mind, (laughs) blowing your mind too, that the points of intersection overlap with an epistemology of love, with thinking about the cross as an acceptation of a a holy acceptation of a crude instrument, the the call to carry our cross, to be uh, the, the 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 you the using of this machinery in in ourselves the the nature that we've inherited that has been somehow broken in the fall that this nature that is given to egotistical concerns that we could actually get a new nature we could be a new creation and we could get that nature aimed primarily towards the betterment of the world towards the caring and loving of other human beings oh my gosh it's so <laughs> profound this is where, for me, the, the Verveke's projects and its point of in- intersection with something like Wright's epistemology of love becomes so interesting. And in fact, it's a point of deep intersection with C.S. Lewis's book, The Four Loves. So let's now talk about the second concept, one that's central to Verveke's awakening project, and it's his understanding of one of the Greek words found in the New Testament for love. Now, before we get into this, we have to confess some New Testament scholars are going to have gripes with Verveke, as they do with Lewis and Lewis's Four Loves book, about maybe making too much of the distinctions between the four Greek words for love commonly used in the New Testament. But I still think Verveke's understanding of the agape love of God is profound and insightful. In part 16 of Verveke's Awakening Lectures, he distinguishes the difference between eros, the love made in sexual union or erotic desire, philia, brotherly love or cooperation, and agape, the father-like love of God towards his children. 
Quoting Verveke, You don't love a child because you want to consume it in some way. That's hideous and vicious. You don't love your child when you bring it home from the hospital because it's a great friend to you. It can't cooperate. It can't do that at all. In fact, it's not even a person. It's not a morally, rationally reflective agent. In fact, it's exactly the opposite. You love it precisely because by loving that non-person, you turn it into a person, end quote. Now, I don't think Verveke intends to get into some sort of ontological debate on what a human is. Don't get wrapped up in that. He's not saying that a newborn baby doesn't have inherent value, that it's not a human being, etc. No, what he's talking about are the some of the key distinguishing features between what makes us human persons and what we see in the animal world. The, the, the dividing line between the two. Think of the story of Tarzan, for example. He's born biologically human, but without the proper reception of agape love from his parents. In that way, he's essentially an animal, even though he's a human. He acts as an animal in the world. Uh, we all know the stories, the horror stories of children born into the world who never taste that agape-like love from a father figure, from a parent, the likelihood of them integrating as moral contributing members of human community is greatly diminished. Instead, they are more likely to act in a way that appears as if they have a diminished capacity to delay gratification or a diminished capacity to consider the ramifications of their actions on the happiness of others. And we know that the ability to delay gratification is one of the most significant distinctions between humans and even the most intelligent of other animal species on the planet, right? So what is it that makes that happen? For, for Verveke, in some way, shape, or form, it is the preceding agape-like love of parental figures to bring children up in a way that makes them human persons, contributing members of human community, people that can actually delay gratification to not act as animals in the world. Quote, it's only because you as an animal received the agopic love of others that you were actually transformed into a person. And what you actually do is you internalize other people and how they are aware of you. And that's how you gain your reflective rationality. That is how you gain your own understanding. You fundamentally gain your self-understanding, your sense of self, and your ability to reflect on yourself by how you are reflected through other people. It's a fundamental thing to say, and because it's so fundamental, and we can say it with a few words, it can be trivialized, but we are in a very deep sense born out of an agopic love that precedes us. It is because of agape, because of the way other people have devoted themselves and participated in you, that you went from a non-person into a person, end quote. Now, this is the part, I've heard Paul Vanderclay talk about this, when, when Verveke talks about agape, we should probably take an offering in an altar call after, because it, he's grabbing on these deep Christian theological truths. He's grabbing on this preceding love of God that we see exemplified in parents, and the way that that identity shapes behavior, identity precedes it. And where do we get our identity? We get it, not just in some sort of, we're not on an island to ourselves. We don't just make ourselves who we are. 
Again, Verveke highlights this. It's, it seems so fundamental that we can overlook it. We gain our own self-understanding and our ability to reflect on ourselves through the way other people consider us and speak of us, to how they love us. We gain our own sense of self-worth and identity from those experiences. Now, Verveke is drawing upon the parental love of agape, but Agape isn't merely a parental love. It is the preceding non-merit-based love that at one point preceded your parents, and it preceded their parents, and it preceded their parents, and on and on we can go. And Verveke understands this. He understands without explicitly affirming that for Christians, the ultimate fount of all preceding Non-merit-based love is God. God is the fount of this love. God is love, as John says. Verveke also understands that this kind of love is fundamentally sacrificial in its nature. Quote, agape has a sacrificial component to it because what I'm actually doing is I'm giving up. I'm making myself an affordance for your transformation from non-person into person, end quote. So this love is for giving love, meaning before any reciprocity can be given in return, it gives first. To this point, Verveke highlights one of the unique features of Jesus's message, especially throughout the Synoptic Gospels, the link between our forgiveness and the forgiveness we extend to others. We experience agape as we participate in it. In Verveke's lecture about agapic love, he highlights something often overlooked about the Apostle Paul's conversion and even the most deeply committed Christian circles. We often like to focus on the moment of conversion for Paul being the awakening and the experience that he had the literal epiphany he has with Christ on the road to Damascus. But what we so easily overlook is that Paul gets called immediately after to go to Antioch to be taken in by the very people he set out to persecute. He experiences in the people of God the agopic, forgiving love of God. And it's in the company of those who have forgiven him that his sight is restored. That'll preach, right? That's, I mean, until I heard Verveke talk about this, I don't think I'd ever heard a preacher or theologian really focus on that aspect of Paul's conversion in that specific way. Paul experiences the agopic, forgiving love of God from the ones he had set out to persecute. And that is just as much as part of Paul's conversion experience as it is him encountering Christ on the road to Damascus. It's in that forgiving, other-centered love that we begin to see properly. Okay, This is where we connect this back to N.T. Wright's epistemology of love. We do not see the world correctly unless we begin with agopic, forgiving love. Interestingly enough, a bit of a side note here, uh, the epistle to the Galatians records another 
incident, another significant incident in the life of Paul that happens at Antioch. Maybe some of you remember this or or flipping in your Bibles to get there now. Galatians 2 tells us of how Paul had this really nasty dispute and confrontation with Peter because Peter was not consistently extending agopic, forgiving, and including love to the Gentiles because at certain times, Peter was afraid for his reputation and possibly, you know, for his own well-being from those who were part of the, you know, what Paul calls in uh, Galatians 2, the circumcision group. That was a group that thought, even with Jesus' coming, that inclusion into the community of God meant that you had to assume the cultural practices of the Jewish people, including circumcision, right? Paul was convinced, however, the love of God that always precedes any reciprocity, the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ, didn't require people to adopt these cultural practices in order to experience salvific union with God. So in this area, Peter wasn't seeing clearly, and Paul was right. Peter was letting ego and the potential loss of status cloud his ability to see and understand reality rightly. Without radical decentering, without a self-giving agopic epistemology of love, we can come to know factually correct propositions about the world and still be in the wrong. This is the philia nikea that Verveke talks about, the love of victory. The love of victory is still using all of the machinery of self-preservation and ego to gain and maintain power, even as it pursues and attains to factually correct propositions about the world. It is using all of our being to keep ourselves at the center of the story and attempting to make truth subservient to egotistical agendas. Now, the person who does this may still be acquiring knowledge. There's no doubt about that. But they're not acquiring wisdom. They are still missing the point. They're missing the mark. Remember harmartia, missing the mark, the Greek word for sin? It's sin. And what are the wages of harmartia? What are the wages of missing the mark? The wages of that are death. Not as some like punitive sentencing, as if we imagine God being some angry despot judge, right? But it is the wages of harmartia are death because it's a factual reality <laughs> that comes with moving away from the fount of not only love, but the fount of life itself. The optimally functional picture of the world runs on self-giving love. And this is why John the Revelator sees a slain lamb enthroned as the ruler of the cosmos. Well, friends, I want to thank you for listening to today's episode of Deep Talks, Exploring Theology and Meaning Making. This podcast can't happen without people doing some self-giving love and uh, supporting this work. Uh, My hope is to give this away, freely give, and for those that see the value in it, they can freely give as well. And then maybe in that sort of mutual giving to each other, we all can benefit. So thank you to those who are supporting this podcast on Patreon. I also try to give a little bit more away to those who are also giving 
um, and, and, and supporting to give some additional things for those that really want to go deeper. We have bonus Q&A episodes. There's opportunities to get together for monthly Zoom discussion times. It's really like a laboratory almost where we're exchanging ideas and working through problems together. It's really been a, a positive opportunity uh, to, to grow, to, to engage in distributed cognition, as John Verveke would call it. Uh, but there's also a discussion forum. There's a discussion forum on my Patreon page. If you want to participate in a discussion forum about today's episode and other pre- all of our previous episodes, I think going back to maybe at least a year or so from now, we've been doing these discussion forums. And they're a great way for us to exchange ideas, to, to grow together, because part of this sort of like self-giving love is the realization that I see in part, right? Um, I don't know it all. And so it's been really, really helpful in these discussion forums to have uh, people with a posture of heart that are open to learn, to have um, healthy dialogue. I, you know, there's been very little instances of this philia Nikea that I've seen in our discussion forums. Um, you know, there's a lot more of that maybe in just kind of general social media platforms, but I'm glad that we can provide a forum for people if they want to participate in that. I'm always open to getting questions and hearing concerns, points of disagreement either. That's how I grow as well. So if you didn't want to support on Patreon, that's just fine. You could reach out to me on Twitter or on Instagram at Paul Anleitner. I'll leave my link to my Twitter feed in the bio. Um, I've been a little more active on Instagram as well if you want to connect with me there. Um, but yeah, if you reach out with your questions, observations, things you agreed with, things you didn't just things you disagreed with as well. Right now I'm talking into a microphone in a room by myself. It's pretty strange, right? Very very different than in um, other settings where I've been a teacher and when I've been preaching and there's a room of people and you kind of kind of read the room and you kind of see whether or not stuff's landing or not. So even if you just reach out and tell me the things that landed with you and that were helpful, gosh, that's really helpful for me to hear because I have no clue because I can't read your face right now. <laughs> so anyways, thanks for listening. I want to give an extra special Special thanks to, to Tim K, Taylor, Sean, Sarah, Sam P, Sam and Nicole, Rob, Peter, Paul Reese, Paul Spencer, Mike Thomas, Michael Peterson, Michael Hernstein, Michael Hawk, Matthew, Luke, Lola, Justin, JT, Josie, Johnny, John Michael, John Mark, Dr. Jim, Elise, Eli, Carolyn, BJ, Anders, Jesse, and Clint. Thank you guys for your generous support. I can't do it without you. I look forward to hearing your feedback. And until next time, we'll talk again soon.